0: If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900CHML.
1: Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board while Will Erskine booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jennifer McQueen. Wasn't it nice to enjoy a Mother's Day weekend and not having to worry whether the Leafs were going to win or not? Here's Scott Thompson. Oh, that's just ugly.
0: That just hurts. What's with that? Good afternoon. Oh, he is right. Uh, Good afternoon. It is 3.08. It is 900 CHML in Hamilton, 980 CFPL in London. Thanks for joining us. Great to have you here. Feel free to jump into the conversation. Send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Phone lines always open, 905-645-3221. You can talk. You can text. You can leave us your last word. As well, join us for Hammerhead Trivia coming up after the 5 o'clock news. Your chance to win a pair of tickets to catch Forge FC versus Vancouver FC Friday, May uh, May 19th. Could be yours, uh, just for knowing the history of this great city. All right, uh, well, no Canadian teams left in the uh, Stanley Cup playoffs. Is that it for you? Are you out? You toast? You poop? You doo-doo? You gone? Uh, Vegas uh, beating uh, the Oilers uh last well last night five to two, so they are out as well as the Leafs. But I, you know, again, wasn't it nice having just a nice, calm, and 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 beautiful Mother's Day weekend, and not have to run to a TV set and wonder if the Leafs were going to play, or if they're going to win, or they're going to lose, or whether you're going to be in a grumpy mood while you're all having dinner there. Next thing you know, it's a bun fight. Uh, So, there's one way to look at it. All right. The prime minister, as we speak, is uh, in uh, Edmonton. He's on his way to Asia. He's going to. uh, a G7 summit. They're going to meet with South Korea, Japan, and, and, and a whole swack of other G7ers out there. And on the way out, thought he'd stop in uh, Edmonton and, um, and and greet military personnel that I guess that are helping with uh, the forest fires and such that are out there. Uh, almost just under 20,000 Albertans have been evacuated due to the fire situation out there. Uh, the troops are in to help and uh, now the Prime Minister is there. Get them to fill some sandbags! Oh no, that's flooding get him get him a hose anything uh and then of course from there it is off to uh the g7 summit as of course the uh The brouhaha continues to brouhaha here at home, whether it's uh, uh, Chinese interference in elections. This was kind of fascinating. Um, uh, The safety minister said a long time ago that uh, they had taken care of the police stations, the Chinese Communist Party police stations that were in uh, Canada, and that, in fact, isn't the case. They weren't shut down, and now he's saying that there's more of them out there than what he thought. So, um, you know, we continue to try to grapple with this and, and, and figure out why the government just does not seem to be interested in this whatsoever. Oddly enough, as we're doling out uh, all kinds of funds to auto companies to secure uh, jobs here in EV vehicle plants, battery manufacturing, whatever it is, end to end, as they say. Um we certainly heard of the great deal that VW struck with the government in, in solidifying a plant near St. Thomas. Uh, Stellantis has stopped construction of their Windsor plant, and that was involved in EV uh, technology, batteries and such, uh, because Ottawa has not delivered on the funds that it has promised. Uh, obviously, when these deals are made, they come with plenty of incentives from the government to various levels of government in order to have these jobs in these industries uh, in Canada. And we've certainly heard uh, lots of debate over whether we should be spending that kind of money, whether we should be uh, giving these sorts of incentives. But, you know, when you're talking about the future being EV, what <laughs> if you, you know, we saw when we didn't hit, ha- we see what happens when we don't give incentives to big pharma to produce uh, vaccines here a global pandemic arrives and we're the last ones of the industrialized uh, industrialized nations to get vaccine. Now, all of a sudden, boom, we're starting to at least work on the finished product here. Well, it's the same sort of thing when it comes to technology with renewables, EVs, that sort of thing. If you're not going to give the companies incentive to be here, somebody else will. It's as simple as that. And whether this has something to do with the VW deal and Stellantis wanting more, but what they're saying in their official release is that Ottawa has not delivered the funds that it already had promised. So the ind- the, the interesting thing is the industry minister has uh, responded with the line we will continue to negotiate and you would think well if they're at the construction phase the negotiation process probably would be over because now they're actually building the dang thing so somebody must be paying for it Uh, and at the end of the day uh, the industry ministers, uh, his his uh, response was, "We will continue to negotiate." What that means, you would think everything would be negotiated long before shovels get into the ground, um, but who knows? What do you do? All right, so uh, continuing uh, uh, continuing to watch that story as well as uh, time progresses. All right, another strong show coming up. Hope you hang around for it. Uh, we're going to talk about those ongoing police stations that uh, apparently were supposed to be closed or at least that's what the safety minister said. They were closed, and now uh, they're not only not closed, but there's more than what they thought. We're going to talk about that. Also going to talk about the Salinas deal and where that goes moving forward, whether this will get back on track and construction will continue. I see no reason why it won't, uh, but it'll be interesting to see where this goes uh, as we continue, also, uh, we're talking about uh, urban expansion. And, and, you know, many people are talking about the green belt and, and development and cutting into the green belt. Well, before you we even get to that, um, there's areas uh, outside or within city limits that are considered white belt, which are areas that have already been zoned for building, but just haven't been serviced yet. And it seems the municipalities are really slow. Uh, to get that done. Hamilton working on some sort of strategy in order to speed all of that up. Uh, And of course, the benefits to that and moving things forward. We're going to talk about that. Also, as we mentioned, uh, G7 coming up and the prime minister is on his way there via Alberta. We'll talk about that. And also uh, because of the concern over China and the Chinese communist party ruling it and the supply chain, where they go back to COVID-19 and all the issues that have, have arose since then, Um, We've been talking about finding different areas, different places to uh, service our supply chain. How does that change the current supply chain? We'll talk about that coming up. We've talked at length, whether it's with uh, Sam Cooper from Global News or uh, the Globe and Mail or what have you, about uh, the ongoing concern regarding Chinese Communist Party police stations that are operating here uh, in Canada on behalf of Beijing and the government there. They say it's to help them, uh, meaning Chinese Canadians, with things like um, driver's licenses and such, when in fact we're finding out that there's uh, more going on, including intimidation and such. Uh, the public safety minister, um, uh, Marco Mendicini, sorry, uh, Marco Mendicini earlier was saying that uh, the RCMP was on this and that he even alluded that these had been closed down. Now there may be more of these so-called police stations in Canada, says the minister. To find more about all of this, Marcus Kolga with us, senior fellow at the McDonald laurie Institute Centre for Advancing Canada's Interest Abroad and founder of disinfowatch.org and with us now. Marcus, thanks for the time. Hope you're well.
1: I'm well. Thanks for having me on, Scott.
0: How come the change in tone here? uh, Initially, uh, Marco Mendoncino said that uh, the RCMP was on this, that these have been closed down. Now we're hearing there may be more than we originally thought. Why the change of tune here?
1: Well, uh, I mean, that's a good question. Uh, you know, we, we did know that these, uh, other police stations were operating in Vancouver. Uh, there were at least two in Markham. Uh, those were exposed, uh, thankfully by, um, you know, our intrepid, uh, Canadian investigative journalists, people like, uh, uh Sam Cooper, who you mentioned earlier. Um, and so the, the, government was forced to react when they were exposed. Um, you know and of course these these police stations they're not really they're not advertising themselves as such you know it's not like you're driving down the street no. and it says there's a big sign out front saying here's a you know a chinese communist party police police station these are clandestine operations um, they are operating without the knowledge of the Canadian government or the local governments that the, in the municipalities that they're operating in, and so it's actually anyone's guess as to how many of these are actually operating right now um, in in Canada. It could be that this is just the tip of the tip of the iceberg, and so it shouldn't come as any sort of surprise when. When we discover that new uh, new police stations are operating, and these two new ones, according to reports, are are uh, operating around Montreal, there may be others in other cities. So, um, you know, clearly, you know, the the minister was was taken a little bit by surprise here, I think, um, and uh, and I think that it dem- also demonstrates the fact that uh, you know we need to our government needs to uh, pour more resources into uh, making sure that, uh, you know, the RCMP whether or, or the OPP, that they have the uh, the resources, the human resources, the, the folks that are specializing in intelligence and who understand these sorts of operations so that they can uh, keep an eye on them, monitor them, and make sure that um, we can figure out where all of these uh, stations are operating and shut them down when we do find out about them.
0: Uh, is it too little, too late? Uh, is there so much interwoven in our into our society now that it's too? Is it difficult or impossible to reverse this?
1: Yeah, look, uh, you know, we we stuck our heads in the sand about foreign interference already fifteen years ago. Um, had we started doing something about it back then, even ten years ago? Uh, we would have been in better shape. Um, we've allowed these authoritarian foreign regimes, and let let me remind you, and your your listeners, this is not just a China problem. Yeah. This is also a problem. the The Russian government engages in surveillance of its own diaspora. It engages in what we call transnational repressions. This is the issuing of threats and intimidation against uh, critics of of the regime. I've been. Uh, the focus of of Russian death threats over the past number of years, um, the Iranian government uh, also engages in these sorts of activities, and it's pretty darn widespread. And we know this because the uh, National Security and Intelligence Committee of Parliament this is the, one of the all party committees. There's no partisanship on it. All party committees that's uh, that is being set up to keep an eye on and report on uh, our the uh, the foreign interference and threats to our democracy, they've been warning about this for years already. So we've known that it's happening. It shouldn't, there's no surprises here. Um, And so, you know, too little, too late. Well, you know, uh, at least the government is waking up to this threat, but, um, but I think they need to be doing a heck of a lot more. The fact that they are finally um, contemplating and have said that they will uh, uh, present a, a new piece of legislation to create a foreign influence registry scheme that would require a lot of these, uh, you know, domestic proxies and enablers that we've been reading about, including, you know, former uh, provincial cabinet ministers, um, legislation that would require them to identify themselves as, you know, uh, acting on behalf of, of these regimes. The fact that this legislation is being put forward is, is a positive uh, step, but we need uh, our, our, our RCMP, our intelligence uh, community needs more resources to combat this, because if we don't stand up to it. If we don't create some sort of costs and consequences for helping authoritarian regimes, they're going to continue operating in this way uh, with uh, and especially if there's they they're able to do so with impunity. So we need to do more to stop them and uh, and deter them from continuing to uh, engage in these sorts of activities. Uh,
0: we only, only got about a minute left here, Marcus, but you know, we've certainly heard that CSIS and the National Security Advisors say this did make it all the way up to the chain to the Prime Minister's office. Uh, yeah. they and the Prime Minister saying he didn't receive it. Uh, we're hearing there's just a culture that, that it, it, it just doesn't buy into this stuff. It just doesn't play this game. Where is the bottleneck? Where is the information stalling? Because it sounds like from the Prime Minister that's, that it's our institutions, but it sounds like it's problems within his own office.
1: Yeah, look, I think that our intelligence communities are, are operating. I, like I said, this National Security Intelligence Committee has warned about this problem in the past in its reports. So it's not like it's a secret. I think it's a problem that the prime minister's office... Um, has had its head stuck in the sand. You know, we heard from his brother at committee just last week suggesting that there is no foreign interference. We saw former Prime Minister yeah. Kretchen speaking at the Liberal Conference last weekend, saying that there, he was making light of the fact that there might be foreign interference. But there are, there are people that are receiving these threats that are being intimidated, including the entire Chinese community, the Iranian community, and much of the Central and Eastern European communities in this country. It's not funny to them. And so the Prime Minister needs to start taking this seriously.
0: Marcus Kolga with us, senior fellow, McDonald laurie Institute Center for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad and founder of DisinfoWatch.org. Marcus, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well.
1: Anytime, my friend. Thanks for having me on.
0: Well, we've certainly heard an awful lot about EV manufacturing and EV plants here in uh, specifically Ontario. Uh, we remember it wasn't that long ago when they pretty much shuttered Oshawa and that was it. The industry was... Looked like it was done. And then boom, 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 a series of uh, EV assembly uh, plants are announced. And then uh, a giant one a couple of weeks ago with the VW announcement into St. Thomas. Well, there's also uh, a Stellantis deal. This is a construction going on right now in Windsor in regard to feeding the EV vehicle chain. And they have stopped construction on their plant in Windsor, and they're saying that the money that they agreed to, that Ottawa would help them with, they haven't delivered. Some are saying, well, uh, a lot of these companies are looking to redo these deals after they hear or have an inkling of what VW got. Um, But this, it appears from the company statement is, we're still waiting for the stuff that was promised uh, to us. And uh, to talk more about all of this, David Booth is with his senior writer for Postmedia driving, driving.ca, and is with us now. David, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am indeed, Scott. So what's going on here, David? What happened?
2: Um, I, it's tough to know. I mean, nobody's seen the actual deals that have been signed. Um, I suspect it's a little bit of justifiably sour grapes on the part of Stellantis, And um, I think, um, you know, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau and his gang have set a very high bar for how much money automakers will now expect to build plants in in Canada. And it's going to be very tough. And and, and all of this is just trying to match the even more incredible amount of money that the American administration is, is tossing around. I mean, it's literally hundreds of billions of dollars.
0: And and you know we certainly know during the global pandemic what happens when we don't do this. Uh, a great uh, example is uh, pharmaceuticals, and everybody wondering why we didn't have vaccination production. It's like, well, if you don't uh, or vaccination development, if you don't have money in this industry and you're not giving incentives, then plants aren't going to come. And we saw where that got us. So it's it's sort of you're you're damned if you do, if you're damned if you don't here, David.
2: It is, and 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 the thing that I'd like to explain to people is that um, it, what's changed now is that before and for the last many years in the uh, automotive business, there are various jurisdictions, um, depending on how desperate their politicians were, um, would toss money at uh, automakers to build plants assembly plants there and it was always a one time deal uh, sometimes it was cash sometimes it was tax incentives uh, the numbers usually ranged between 300 and 700 million but it was always a one time deal the 13 billion that Volkswagen got is a lot different basically it's matching what the americans are offering and what that is is $45 per kilowatt hour of battery for the next basically 10 years, all the way to 2032. So $45 for every kilowatt hour of battery they produce all the way till 2032. So it's not a um, one-time money. It's not a one-time subsidy. It's an ongoing subsidy. And basically I did some math uh, for a couple of articles that I've done, and it basically shows that the typical plant, they call them gigafactories, um, that produces about 45 gigawatts of hours of battery a year will get about 2 billion US in subsidies each and every year it produces that. Um, the way the Volkswagen deal worked was um, they figured to be up and running about 2026, 2027, $2 billion a year US works out to about $10 billion US by 2032 change it uh, change it over to, you know the exchange rate between american and canadian that works out to the 13 billion dollars Stellantis, i understand got the old system about 500 billion dollars a million sorry dollars up front on a one time basis to build the factory they didn't get this ongoing um uh, subsidy and so i think there's a little bit of misinformation on both sides i think One, um, um, the uh, amount and why the federal government gave Volkswagen $13 billion is um, not been fully transparent. On the other hand, I think that Windsor and Stellantis probably have received the one-time only payment, or part of it at least, that they were scheduled to get. What they're pissed off at is that they didn't get any of the recurring monies that are being offered now.
0: Uh, that being said, so David, is this about uh Stellanis now wanting a better deal, or is it the case that the government hasn't given them what they said they were going to give them in the first place because they've alluded to the latter? But you're, I know, is is this a renego or Ah. is this a renegotiating technique?
2: I am I, you know, I'm not in the middle of it. There's probably 12, 15 people that have seen the actual paperwork and they all work for the government or Stellantis. So I I don't know for sure, but um, I'm not much of a betting man, but I would bet large that it's, they want to renegotiate what's happening. I mean, why wouldn't you? I mean, let's face it. I mean, they, they, they signed the deal in March, 2022, I believe. Um, And the Inflation Reduction Act, which just tossed all this money I just described at the American manufacturers, was signed in August. So if they had waited between from March to August, they could have built that plant in the States, anywhere in the States, and they got got automatically $13 billion dollars. Or they could have said to um, the Canada, match the $13 billion we can get in the States, and we'll still build it in Windsor, if they'd waited just from March to August. Um, and to be honest with you, um, I'm not tooting my own horn. I'm only saying this because we should have seen this coming. I wrote about this way back in October, saying that Stellantis is really got the short end of the stick. And something gives because you can't expect a company that to get take 500 million dollars as uh and accept it when their direct competitor has gotten 13 billion dollars on a recurring um uh, basis uh for the next 5 to 10 years it's not fair to stellantis i mean it may be sour grapes but it's totally justifiable sour grapes.
0: Uh, The industry minister uh, minister says that they're going to continue to negotiate with Stellantis, which would allude that the deal is still open, which seems very odd considering construction has started.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, both of them are over the proverbial barrel. On the one hand, they have, uh, Stellantis has started construction, um, which may or may not be able to be stopped. I mean, certainly can be stopped, but it would be embarrassing at the very least. Um, so, you know, they've got, uh, an onus to continue, uh, for the, um, uh, for the federal government, um, you know, I mean, they've been boasting on how good they're doing about attracting business and, and the Stellantis thing, let's remember that, you know, it's what, um, 15 months ago, this was announced a great fanfare and great joy by one and all, um, and, 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 and like that, um. So uh, there, there's pressure on both sides to try to do something about this. One thing I will say is this: uh, the only I've been writing about the Inflation Reduction Act and its effect on Canada, which is exactly what we're seeing now. This is all because of the Inflation Reduction Act in in the states, and I've been writing on it pretty much since last October, and, and um, you know, almost on a biweekly basis, and. Pretty much everything has happened exactly as I suspected, except for one thing. And that's the fact that the Trudeau government completely matched the American monies. I thought that the reason you know they mat they, you know, matched some of the monies, but they convinced Volkswagen that our good clean energy was worth it for their ESG circumstances and promises, and that the proximity of and guarantee of Uh, materials from Canada, which they don't have in the States, also gave Canada some bargaining uh, power. But as it turns out, they paid the whole $13 billion to get them, the exact same as they would have received, uh, Volkswagen would have received in the States. That really, really weakens the the federal government's bargaining position with Stellantis. It really does. David
0: Booth is with us, senior writer, Post Media Driving, driving.ca, Stellantis, looking for a new deal or just a reconfirmation of what they had? Uh, we'll wait and see. All right. The city is asking the public how it should guide development in urban expansion lands. The province has uh, imposed on Hamilton, but city planners predict shovels won't be in the ground for decades uh as services need to be built up in those areas. So how do we balance all of this moving forward and especially when it comes to input from the public? To talk more about all of this, Maddie Siamat, uh Siematiki with us, Director of the Infrastructure Institute and Professor of Geography and Planning with the University of Toronto and with us now. Maddie, thanks for the time. Hope you're well.
2: Yeah, Scott. Thanks to
0: be with you. It's, it's a fascinating situation we find ourselves in, Maddie, because now, uh, it appears everybody's building, uh, houses and, uh, for the last 10, 20, 30 years, it didn't seem that nobody was building any houses. How do we balance all of this? Because uh, there's obviously those in, uh, in municipalities that want to see more densification within the city, which is obviously one of uh, the options, and another one is expanding beyond. Uh, but is it not a mixture of both? How do we balance this?
3: Well, the first point is about infill, that this is so important, that we have all this infrastructure that's built up. We know we're in a housing crisis. We know we need to move quickly uh, to build more homes and uh, to provide places for people to live. The fastest way to do that is infill, is to build where all of the services, the water, the sewers, the electricity, the roads, the internet cables are already in place. uh, And to really maximize the efficiency of use of all of that existing infrastructure before we consider spreading outwards, which requires all this new infrastructure and runs the risk of urban sprawl and the congestion uh, nightmare that we're already experiencing on our roads around the region.
0: You said uh, before we go out, we have to fill in. However, when you fill in, it's a certain type of neighborhood as opposed to when you go out. So how do you fit a square peg into a round hole? Isn't what's needed is all of this?
3: Well, part of it is all of the infill uh, rules that the province brought in with Bill 23, Uh, and other local governments are now starting to bring in, like the City of Toronto with multiplexes, we need to provide many more housing options in our existing neighbourhoods. We can't just have a housing pattern that is tall and sprawl, that on any site, especially in the downtown core or or along our avenues, people are building as high as is conceivably possible. Uh, And then in the existing neighbourhoods, they're zoned exclusively for single-family housing and no one else can get in. We need to try to break that deadlock and provide a whole bunch of other options. And this is what's happening now with the three units and secondary suites and garden suites and laneway housing and now multiplexes in the city of Toronto to try to really provide all sorts of new housing typologies within the existing built form.
0: Uh, from the experts that I've talked to, Maddie, um, great idea, absolutely something that sh- we should be doing, but it's only a part of the solution, that there is nowhere near enough infill to even begin to uh, handle the demand. So shouldn't we be doing all of this at once?
3: So I would continue to point out that there's actually a lot of land within our existing built-up areas. A lot of it is isn't greenfield, but it's brownfield. It may be former industrial sites. Uh, or it may be shopping plazas that have huge parking lots. It may also be some of our publicly owned lands, like our libraries or our rec centers that are one- and two-story aging buildings surrounding by lar- surrounded by large parking lots that could have other housing uh, built in, in the parking lots or on top of the buildings uh, to provide new uh, housing for people. So we really need to be looking at our existing land areas. And I would challenge people when you're in and around your own community, just look around at the types of spaces that are available. Are our main avenues one- and two-story buildings when they should be six and seven? Uh, do we have shopping malls with giant parking lots that could be better used? And to look at some of our public facilities and look at their own parking lots or with the air rights up above them and think about what's possible. And I think if we combine all of these different opportunities within our existing areas, we know from Uh, research that's out there that there's lots of room for housing uh, for people. We just need to find ways to break the deadlock and get building on some of those existing areas.
0: Does all, and we've only got about 30 seconds left, does all housing equal sprawl? I mean, you know, I can think of a neighborhood that I live in, which has big houses, small houses, semi-detached, it is townhouses, it has mid-level high-rises, and it's all joined with beautiful parkland and trails and reservoirs and whatever. So why can't you have it all in one block when you're building these new neighborhoods?
3: That sounds like exactly the type of neighbourhood we're talking about and the key other piece of urban planning is intensification, is that it's all in areas that can be served by public transit. If we're building the exact type of neighbourhood you described, but we're building it outwards in places that are far away from existing public transit or from jobs and other amenities, people are going to have to drive to get there. And we should really be focusing on our existing neighbourhoods, maximising all of the infrastructure that we have in place before we consider spreading outwards onto areas that haven't been built on yet.
0: Maddie Siamaticki with us, Director of the Infrastructure Institute and Professor of Geography and Planning, University of Toronto. Maddie, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. You too, Scott. Thanks. Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. As you no doubt know, uh, Alberta having an incredible year when it comes to forest fires. The spring, very, very dry, and they are spreading. And uh, up to, we're hearing now, reports of almost 20,000 people have been evacuated over the course of this thing in Alberta. Let's bring in Sarah uh comedina a digital journalist with global news in edmonton and is with us now sarah thanks for the time hope you're well under these very uh stressful conditions what's it like there Uh, is it is is it obvious there's there's big issues in alberta
4: yes i would say scott that there is um right now i am in edmonton but i was out near wildfires uh, a few days ago and Here in the city, there is blue skies, but you definitely know that there is a tense situation across the province. We have 87. active wildfires right now and 24 of those are out of control. There's just been another emergency alert for Valley View which is just a few hours north from here and um, so another community that is expected to um, flee their homes and this community is also interesting too because in Valley View they took in a bunch of animals uh, that belong to evacuees and they're going to also have to deal with that situation. So just very tense and they have to leave right away. And that's continuously happening throughout our province.
0: We're hearing that there's uh, up to like 20,000 people that have been evacuated. Is that accurate? And and how does that compare to other years?
4: Yes. Um, so that is accurate. And, and it compares to other years in the sense that we have seen major wildfires that have seen major cities uh, be forced yeah. to flee, right? So the Fort McMurray wildfires that happened about five years ago and then in 2011, there was a Slave Lake wildfires. The difference here is that there are so many wildfires burning in different places. So a lot of these evacuees are coming from different communities, smaller communities. And then that means there's pressures on communities that are taking them in because they're not used to seeing that um, amount of people there. Uh, so that's how it's different than previous years.
0: And dry weather, we're hearing out that way, making it even uh, more difficult for this situation. Is it lightning strikes that are starting these or, or are man-made? Any idea at this
5: point?
4: It's hard to say. We know that uh, there is some suspected causes of lightning strikes, but that's about 28 of the fires that we are seeing. There is 224 that happened throughout this year uh, that were human-caused, and that could be a number of Causes it. It just means it's caused by humans somehow. We do have a um, an order not to use any uh, ATV or dirt bike vehicles out into the bush. Mm. Uh, people are being told just don't throw your cigarettes out the window, and it, it's so dry here. And there's no rain in the forecast. So the situation is tense for so many people because you just don't know where these fires could start. And then when they do with the wind and the heat, you don't know when they'll stop or where they'll go to.
0: And no relief. It appears at this point from the weather, Sarah.
4: No, it just it's so dry here. And there's no precipitation in the precipitation in the forecast. Hmm. And it's just, it's so intense. I was just talking to um, Reeve from Northern Community and he says, I really just hope this isn't the tip of the iceberg for what the situation will be this summer because it's happening so early. Usually we see this in July and August and he's just hoping that this isn't going to continue all summer, that we can get control on some of these fires and that rain finally comes and we can get a break and everybody working to put them out can get some respite.
0: Uh, I understand the Prime Minister touched down there on the way to the G7. Uh, the military also called in to help. What is the military going to do? Any idea, Sarah?
4: Well, they're able to help with boots on the ground, uh, digging uh, trenches, helping with equipment, uh, doing things to protect communities in those homes. Uh, the focus is, of course, making sure humans are all safe, and um, and then it's making sure their homes, they'll be able to return home. So. That's what crews will be working on, and the military will help be will be able to help aid in the fight against these fires. Honestly, we need all the help we can get. Our resources are spread so thin uh, just because there's so many fires burning in different places in the province.
0: And where do the people go, Sarah, that have been evacuated? We remember during the last fires that you talked about, there was just these mammoth, uh, huge operations uh, trying to house and and keep track and and care of these people. Where are those that have been evacuated? Where do they go?
4: It's all over the place. Um, So right now we have evacuees here in Edmonton. Uh, We have evacuees that are a couple hours north in Whitecourt and Grand Prairie. Valley View had evacuees come there and then now they're on evacuation order that's just the situation we're in so people are just going to where they can Uh, we know of some very small communities as well that are taking in evacuees and they're not turning anyone away so it's it's intense for where these people go and then they're gone for more than a week at a time It's, it's getting to be more than a week that they've been away from home so you can just imagine the stress everyone's feeling Sometimes they're camping and sometimes they're with family, but sometimes they're in hotels or, or elsewhere. So it's just, it's it's a lot.
0: Sarah Comandino with us, digital journalist with Global News in Edmonton, giving us an update on the fires out there. Almost 20,000 evacuated as a result of all of this. Sarah, thanks so much for the time and the insight. Be safe. Good luck. Thank you. Don't go away. We're coming right back. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. The prime minister has uh, taken off. Actually, now he's, um, um, well, the press and everybody took off to go to uh, the G7. And the prime minister took the challenger to head into Edmonton and talk to the troops that are uh, there helping with the wildfire. And then they'll hook up, I think, in Alaska and then uh, take off to the other side of the world for the G7 this week. Uh, in in Japan, visiting Seoul, uh, South Korea as well through all of this. Let's bring in Dr. Jack Cunningham, Ph.D. Program Coordinator at the Bill Graham Center for Contemporary International History, Trinity College, and the Monk School, University of Toronto, with us now. Jack, thank you for the time. I hope you're well.
5: I am. hope you are, too. Good to be with you. So so lots
0: going on in the world. What will be a top of uh, the agenda, top of mind at this G7 this time out?
5: well obviously because of the uh, the extent to which it simply dominates the room any room uh the situation in ukraine is going to look very large but we're also going to see some focus on indo-pacific security i mean uh, japan is the uh, is the host and if you look at the uh, the list of invited guests the uh, the summit aside from the, the 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 actual participants there's not only uh mr zelensky but uh the leaders of australia india indonesia vietnam and south korea uh so this is uh this is indicative i think there is going to be a lot of concern with uh, security in the indo pacific uh, region the uh, the things that uh, north korea and beijing have been up to in recent months will loom large on the agenda and we may see some uh, uh, some different important differences of emphasis. A Mr. Uh, Mr. Macron, for example, has been uh, as tended to see Beijing is able to play a much more constructive role than most of his colleagues. So that may put him somewhat offside with uh, with all the rest of them. We'll see. There's also the fact that it's the first leader summit for uh, two of the uh, the seven leaders, uh, Rishi Sunak of Britain and Giorgio Maloney of Italy. So we'll see how they uh, interact with their colleagues. Uh,
0: is, is trade in a world without China or with a certainly greater reduced role of China in, in trade and, and balance and such, is that on the agenda? Is, how, how big of, uh, of an ambition is that to try to diversify for all of these countries?
5: It is a it is a big ambition for some, less so for others. There's uh, there's the uh, the commitment on the part of some, that precisely because China is such a big economy, such a big player geopolitically, you can't really afford to do too much without uh, at least uh, at least some degree of cooperation with China. There's also the argument that uh, that some make, and I think uh, this would uh, this would probably be the the line that uh, Monsieur Macron would take. That if we've already got uh russia on the outs uh can we really afford to be on the outs with china as well now it's not a ridiculous question although uh, some of us some of us would certainly differ with the answer that uh, monsieur macron would come up with
0: that being said uh between russia and china are we not more dependent on china than we are russia
5: uh, economically we are but uh, by this by the same token uh China is dependent on the on the outside world for uh, for many things and is rapidly running up against the limits of what it can uh, what it can accomplish without increased integration with the world economy which may not be on the, uh, in, the in the in the cards depending upon Beijing's behavior
0: Is China feeling the rest of the free world pushing back on this, Uh, having meetings that greatly talk about alternatives to them? Do they realize what's going on here?
5: Well, they're not not fools, and uh, uh, Mr. Xi has uh, people around him who are knowledgeable on these issues and who will keep him up to speed on them. Uh, The question is, to some extent, he sort of boxed himself in with his very ambitious geopolitical agenda and his very bellicose rhetoric. I'm not sure he could afford to uh, retreat dramatically, even if he were so inclined.
0: How concerned is China when the West starts poking around that Indo-Pacific region and and looking to do deals, whether it's trade or security?
5: Uh, China has to be very concerned because it understands that a lot of this is aimed at uh, containing Chinese influence and power. Uh, And and to the extent that that looms uh, looms large on the agenda at the G7, you can expect China to look rather askance at it.
0: Does China realize they have sped up these talks uh, due to their their position in the world?
5: They may. They may. uh, Mr. Well, it's Mr. Xi that we have to uh, we have to worry about because it's pretty much a one-man show over there. But he may very well uh, conclude that. uh, the uh, the price he has to pay is uh, is a price worth paying. Uh, I'm not sure that would be wise on his part, but it may very well be his calculation.
0: What about energy? What role will it play in uh, this G7? Will the Prime Minister get more pressure for Canadian liquid natural gas?
5: I'd be amazed if he didn't. Energy looms large. Everybody is concerned about the impact that the Ukraine situation has had on uh, on global energy supplies, also also there is a concern about uh, food security, uh, inflation in both uh, food 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 commodities and energy. All of these uh, all of these issues are somewhat tangled together, so it'll be interesting to see how the the leaders of the G seven cope with them. <laughs>
0: We remember that the Prime Minister said he doesn't see a business case for natural gas, despite the rest of the Europe uh, presenting it to him um, right in front of him. We've seen the Prime Minister late to the game when it comes to uh, Chinese Communist Party interference, whether it's an election or, or generally Canadian life. Uh, late to that game. Will he be late to this game? Can you see him changing his mind, his position on energy as he gets shaken down for it?
5: I think it would be tough for him to change his mind on, uh, on the energy situation. He's, uh, he's staked so much of his political appeal on appealing to the environmentalist constituency. He's, he's not in great shape in the polls. He probably doesn't think he can afford to alienate that, uh, that element of the, uh, of the liberal base. Uh, but uh, you're, you're right. He's, uh, he's probably in a minority of one on liquid natural gas. And it doesn't reflect well on him, and it doesn't reflect well on the plausibility of his uh, stance towards China.
0: What's the cost of Canada to Canada on that?
5: Well, the cost to Canada is we're not taken seriously if uh, if we if we don't uh, act like a serious player. And part of acting like a serious player is dealing with these issues uh, in a in a a, a timely and uh, and realistic manner, and rather than engaging in rhetorical posturing, there's also the fact we we should keep in mind that uh, this uh, this summit comes relatively soon after Canada released its Indo-Pacific strategy. This is the time for the Prime minister to show if he's actually going to flesh that out, put uh, put meat on this bone on those bones, and make it a substantial commitment rather than just a lot of uh, rhetorical hot air.
0: Good point. Dr. Jack Cunningham with us, PhD program coordinator, Bill Graham Center for Contemporary International History in Trinity uh, College and the Monk School, University of Toronto. Jack, always exciting. Thanks for the time. Be well.
5: You too. Take care, Scott.
0: We've talked a lot, especially uh, post-global pandemic, post-to-Michaels and election interference and such, how the world is changing uh, how countries becoming more self-sufficient how the supply chain will change as a result and we remember the issues over the last three years there let's bring in Ofer baron distinguished professor of operations management economic Di- economic director uh, academic director mma program at the rotman school of management university of toronto and with us now
6: over thanks for the time hope you're well yes i am well i hope you're well too scott so
0: far, so good. Uh, you know, over, uh, uh, we were actually talking with another professor, uh, professor from UFT just not uh, too long ago, talking about the G7 and uh, industry leaders meeting there, the prime minister on his way there, and we'll also meet with uh, South Korea and such. How much of this uh, meeting will be dedicated to expanding or diversifying supply chains, whether it's for Canada or any other country uh, in the G7 to become less reliant on China?
6: Not enough. (laughs) Uh,
0: How come? Um,
6: I I think we got used to be able to rely on global partners in much of our supply chain. And uh, this is uh, something good. It helps everybody uh, globally. Recently, as you mentioned, there are some pressure to try and rely more on internal uh, production and services and uh, logistic services for that matter. And you want to have some important uh, capabilities uh, internally to, to your country essentially.
0: And obviously, Canada tabling an Indo-Pacific strategy just prior to this. Will they be trying to sell that?
6: I think so. There is a a place to create a more balanced uh, supply chain, more balanced import and export uh, globally. One of the things that caused lots of damage in the recent um, pandemic is the fact that we are importing from several countries, much more than we are exporting to them. And this Mm. imbalance is something that is uh, not uh, sustainable for a long uh, time.
0: Uh, You obviously have political issues the way they are around the world, but also coming off a global pandemic. How has that changed our perspective?
6: Uh, There's there's a huge change because of the pandemic. First of all, the economic situation, in in 2023 to 2025 would have been look significantly different if there was no COVID 19, right? We are still in a, a recession. We've seen a higher inflation than we are used to in many countries around the world. And also, as you mentioned, the pressure to create a more internal supply of many critical items is uh, much larger because we all experience what happens when you don't have that. With
0: this change or this refocus, does that mean traditional supply chains will suffer or is there enough for everybody or we just depend too much on others to eliminate them? Will it just diversify or will we literally stop one and go to another?
6: Uh, Supply chain is uh, something uh, dynamic. There's no one solution uh, that could work from now until the end of this uh, decade even, not talking about century century. So some flexibility in how you manage your supply chain, how you allow new uh, customers in, how you allow new suppliers in, is uh, something that you always have to keep in mind, especially as I hinted earlier, if we try to create a more balanced import and export with other countries, those are things that we need to consider and the supply chain around it is certainly critical.
0: Would this mean less business for traditional supply chains, i.e. the Panama Canal? They're worried, some worried that it will see a decrease in activity.
6: Yeah, the Panama Canal did see a decrease in activity this year. I think uh, mainly because of uh, the lower economic activity in the world, on the one hand, and also the uh, larger shortage of uh, Say gas and uh, oil in Europe that uh, mm-hmm. rather than you know the U.S. and Canada rather than shipping uh, these through the Panama Canal to uh, the east to to Asia they have uh, or to the west excuse me to Asia they've sent it east they're sending it east to Europe who require which requires it more so as two things that kind of reduce the activity in the Panama Canal and I think that once the economy will come back to a normal the Panama Canal will see uh, uh, again an increase in its usage it's an extremely important uh, route.
0: Ofer Barron with us distinguished professor of operations management academic director MMA program at the Rotman School of Management University of Toronto. Ofer always fascinating uh, thanks so much for the time be well. Thank you you too Scott bye-bye. When there's an issue Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CXM1. Mohawk College and Transport Canada's Innovation Centre have agreed to work together on research projects related to remotely piloted aircraft systems drones sky gauge robotics recently made some significant agreements with mohawk and transport canada we find more about their role and what is going on maxim coral with us chief technology officer at sky gauge robotics and here now maxim thanks for the time hope you're well
7: hey there how you doing so far so good
0: Uh, maxim tell us about sky gauge robotics what are you all about
7: yeah, so uh, thanks for that intro. We developed drones, uh, probably here in the city of Hamilton, uh, which do industrial inspections. Uh, so I think you're probably pretty familiar with drones uh, that fly around and look at stuff. But we've designed a drone that flies around buildings and touches them to assess corrosion and assess other kind of structural integrity, uh, integrity elements.
0: Wow. So this is uh, this is not just about pictures. This is touching, feeling and analyzing as well.
7: Yeah, that's absolutely right. Yeah. So we, we actually fly drones up to big metal structures, like the kind of stuff you see down at the water down here in Hamilton. And uh, we check, you know, things like thickness, corrosion, flaws, uh, you name it. Uh,
0: the amount of uh, industry that could use drones just seems uh, endless. Uh, you know, where anything that's needed, it seems somehow a drone can help this industry. This is really growing, isn't it?
7: Yeah, absolutely. It's part of like a big trend, I think, in robotics. Um, I think that people are finding that there's a lot of dull, dirty, dangerous work out in industry. And uh, it can be anything. It can be civil, it can be industrial, it can be, uh, you know, power generation. And I think uh, people really just want to automate away all that dull, dirty, dangerous work.
0: So what sort of agreement have you uh, come to with Mohawk and Transport Canada? How are you getting involved?
7: yeah so uh we've been partnering very closely with Transport Canada and Mohawk College over the ca- uh, uh, over the past few months uh we've been testing our product uh which which is kind of in its early stages it's an innovation um in, in all sorts of uh locations across uh across Canada um things like cold weather things like uh, working over water um you know working on storage tanks uh on ships uh, and, and really transport Canada has helped facilitate this project for us by, uh, saying, hey, you know, we'll grab your drone and we'll give you some resources to go out there and test it. Um, it's really important for products like ours because, uh, you know, not a lot of companies will will often let you take that early shot with something that's still in development. Uh, they've lined up great stakeholders for us, and we've been able to have really successful tests this uh, year. So we're really happy about that.
0: What's the advantage of, uh, of partnering with uh, an educational institution like this?
7: Yeah, that's right. Uh, Mohawk has also been very closely involved here. Uh, They kind of help to validate and test the product. So, you know, like from within the company, we tested in a certain way, um, but we found uh, uh, we're able to kind of give it to students and to educators there in Mohawk College who help us understand how to better train with it, how to better teach others to use it. Um, uh, they get in there and they test it and they, they you know, they get pretty tough on it. Uh, it helps give us a lot of feedback on how to improve the product, where to better use it, and ultimately validate the, uh, the product in a wide range of uh, applications.
0: It makes sense. Give it to students. They'll figure out, uh, you know, how to break it or, or fix it or do something exactly. with right. it that way. <laughs> so what's next? Where can this industry go? I mean, it seems like you're at the tip of the iceberg here.
7: Yeah, that's right. I think that innovations like ours um, kind of are, are part of a growing trend where where we want to see more uh, like robotics, you know, more work being done by machines uh, that, that doesn't necessarily have to be done with humans. Like uh, for us, a big advantage is not sending people to work at heights, uh, especially where they have to do the work manually. Yeah. Sending up a drone uh, is a really, I think, future oriented solution uh, that can, you know, give that paint that mind picture of having that drone do everything for you. And, uh, and I think that's kind of where our innovation is going too. is, you know, inspection is just the start here. Uh, we want to, you know, our vision here at SkyGage is to build the workforce in the skies. Uh, and we really mean that. We want to put, you know, um, like welding capabilities on the drone, uh, painting, pressure washing, coding, uh, sanding, wow. drilling, anything that you want to do by hand, you got to go up there and do it by uh, manually. Uh, I think it's much more advantageous to use a platform like ours.
0: When you're asking a drone to do something like that, what would the size of them be? I mean, even, you know, x-raying structure, what have you, that's one thing. But even going up and physically doing work to it, how big would this thing need to be?
7: Yeah, no, that's exactly right. It really depends on what the job is. So if it's, you know, small little welding jobs, you might be able to get away with something that you can fit in your, you know, trunk of your car. Uh, if you're doing like wholesale painting or, uh, or pressure washing or something, you might need something, you know, three, four times the size. Um, but I mean, our, our drone is relatively small uh, as it currently is uh, that does the inspections and really just depends on the application.
0: Is the occupation of window washer soon to be behind us?
7: I don't know about that. I, I think that uh, tools like ours and automating tools, uh, you know, they kind of coexist with people rather than uh, making it more difficult uh, rather than displacing people. I think we make it easier to to do the job with ours, uh, with our tool. Um, you know, a lot of work in industry is simply omitted today because there's not enough, you know, help, you know, people that can do it. Mm-hmm. And uh, what we're making is something that can actually fulfill all that work.
0: Maxim Coral with us, Chief Technology Officer at SkyGauge Robotics, P, uh, teaming up with Mohawk and Transport Canada and agreeing to work together on research projects uh, involving drones right here. Maxim, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well.
7: Good luck. Thanks so much. All the best.
0: The headline is Lack of National Security Culture in Ottawa is to Blame for the Missed Intel say ex-officials Canada's politicians need to be more proactive in responding to foreign interference by establishing a national security culture within the government to recognize threats when they emerge former intelligence and security officials are saying to talk more about all of this Christian Leprec with us professor at both the Royal Military College of Canada Queen's University and a fellow at the Macdonald-Laurie Institute with us now Christian thanks for the time hope you're well you bet
8: a nice sunny day good afternoon Scott
0: You know, we have talked about this uh, many times, Christian. We know the story. CSIS and the National Security Advisor said the info did make it up the chain on election interference. Uh, Katie Telford, the Chief of Staff for the PM, says, yes, he sees everything. Yet the Prime Minister didn't see it. Is this bottleneck in the Prime Minister's office or is it within CSIS?
8: Do we know? Well, first, my response would be, Uh, That's actually not really a relevant question, because ultimately, under the principle of ministerial responsibility in a Westminster parliamentary system, the minister is responsible for what happens in her, his or their department. And the Privy Council Office is ultimately the Prime Minister's department. So it is the Prime Minister who is responsible for whatever happens there. So this sort of approach that this government has taken with every time something goes pear-shaped, we'll just blame the bureaucracy and it's the fault of the civil servants and they didn't coordinate properly. Well, that's not how Westminster constitutional government works. It is the Cabinet Ministers, in this case the Prime Minister, who are responsible for what their civil servants are doing. And so my question is, if the prime minister apparently sees everything, hears everything, knows everything, which I don't know about your job, Scott, but certainly in my job, I can barely keep up with what I've got going on, let alone imagine running an entire government. But let's assume that, you know, uh, that statement was made in, in good faith. Then that also applies to all the civil servants in your department, because ultimately it is the elected politicians that are responsible. And I see no one in this government actually taking responsibility, whether it's on this file or whether it's on other files where we know that things perhaps didn't go as they should have gone.
0: Well said. Um, You know, we, we talked earlier when all of this started to break how comfortable we can now feel holding elections, knowing the last two potentially were interfered with certainly not enough to change the outcome but there was interference there the prime minister announcing that they're going to hold a series of by-elections i believe it's four how can we hold by-elections if we haven't got to the bottom of this
8: Yeah, I mean, this is exactly the issue that myself and a host of other people who've written about this in the papers, who've testified before committee have raised, that ultimately uh, the adversary has already won by virtue of uh, sowing doubt in our democratic institutions and in our electoral system. And this is why we've called for a number of measures of transparency and accountability on this particular file. Because look, presumably we have this committee of uh, five deputy ministers who will uh, sound the alarm when there is a sign of interference. But A, we know that apparently everything we found out did not meet the threshold of interference during a previous election. So my first question is, well, if that doesn't meet the threshold, then what exactly does do we basically need to have an invasion by the Chinese Party, uh, Communist Party of Canada uh, in order to ring the alarm bells? And perhaps at that point, it's too late. And the other issue is, of course, seeing the coordination issues that apparently exist uh, between CSIS, uh, the. Privy Council Office, the National Security and Intelligence Advisor, uh, the Prime Minister staff and the Prime Minister on this file, how can the Prime Minister can actually assure Canadians that even the measures we do have in place will actually work in order to restore the confidence and trust that Canadians ultimately need to have uh, in their electoral institutions. So I find it quite a bold move that in the midst of this entire deliberation, the Prime Minister chooses to uh, call by elections rather than first making sure uh, that the integrity mm. of the process is uh, restored.
0: Uh, some in the the article that I mentioned referred this uh, referred to this the lack of a military culture with this government. Many have have known that the military is not a priority for this government. Is that any reason for this not to be a priority? <laughs>
8: Well, so look, I think these are controversial issues. There's no votes to be had and there's only votes to be lost, in particular by the Liberal Party, where you know there's um, a significant uh, portion of the electorate that doesn't have a particularly sympathetic view of security, intelligence uh, and defense institutions. And so I think the government has decided that rather than actually confronting this issue head on um, for perhaps reasons of their own electoral fortunes and possible controversies, uh, let's just hope that this noise all dies down and that we can kind of move on with, uh, with issues. Um, and I think that sends exactly the wrong move to a hostile adversary because the signal is, of course, just continue interfering and meddling because uh, until somebody leaks a highly classified report to the news, uh, we're basically not going to do anything about it. And even then we're going to dither for days and weeks uh, before we ultimately do what needs to be done. And, you know, I, I think this is hardly a way to deter this type of activity and my concern is it's not going to embolden uh, the United Front Work Department by the Communist Party of China. It's going to embolden other regimes, whether that's Russia, Iran um, and other uh, governments that aren't particularly sympathetic to us uh, to meddle in our electoral system. And it's going to further diminish our reputation, our standing with our allies who've drawn serious red lines, in particular Australia, uh, the United States and, King- and the United Kingdom.
0: Many have talked about mismanagement or um, just confusion, not a handle on what's going on in order to be able to miss the sorts of things that we're talking about. Is this somebody who's just not rowing with both oars or is this somebody who has a different objective and has a reason for doing this? Because it's really hard for all of us to understand why any government wouldn't want to protect their elections.
8: Look, your guess is as good as mine. But the two points on this is of course, as I've stated repeatedly, this type of interference is the single greatest threat to Canadian sovereignty and to our democratic way of life today. So for the government of the day not to take this seriously to me is just I'm I am completely dumbfounded and uh, and 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 baffled. The other is, look, The National Security Intelligence Advisor is an office with about 140 staff that was created precisely to coordinate security intelligence issues across government on behalf of the Privy Council Office and coordinate that communication with the Prime Minister's office. I have a very hard time to believe uh, that the problems ultimately lie either between CSIS and the NSIA or within the NSIA's office. I would have to think that the problems lie more more likely between the NSIA's office and uh, uh, the Prime Minister's office where people are either deciding that this is not a priority um, or perhaps uh, where people are deciding that for any number of reasons uh, we're just going to put this file aside. So, you know, I think the um, and this is why we need to get to the bottom of this. We need to have uh, a much more transparent parliamentary um, inquiries on this and we ultimately need to have a public inquiry because I find what's happening here and the messaging that we're getting from the Prime Minister on this uh, personally I find unacceptable and I find may the Prime minister may have put himself in a position where he possibly may have misled parliament and that would be a a very serious issue in the Westminster constitutional uh, democratic system of government.
0: Christian Leprac with us, professor at the Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University, fellow at the Macdonald-Laurier Institute. Christian, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well.
8: It's been my pleasure. Thank you, Scott. Have a good afternoon. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show
0: live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpayer and customer, to have the last word.
5: Scott, this is Tony here. On the conversation about the debate between the Prime Minister's office and the CSIS and all the rest of that, it sounds like somebody's saying, not my job. I don't have to do that. i like to know whose job is it to look after us.